Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We live in a world of bombast and noise. Sometimes it seems the volume is turned up full blast all the time. A quick look at our presidential election is ample evidence. We forget that for leaders or just average people, sometimes quiet can have amazing power. The power of thoughtfulness, of creativity, and competence. For young people trying to find their place in the world, sometimes growing amidst the cacophony of a boiler factory is not the healthiest thing. This is the world that Susan Cain took us into in her best-selling book, Quiet. Now she looks specifically at the world of young people in her new book, Quiet Power, The Secret Strength of Introverts. It is my pleasure to welcome Susan Cain to the program. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Do you think that there's more pressure on young people today to be extroverts, to be louder, given the environment that they're in all the time? Yeah, but I mean, I think that pressure has been there for young people for the last probably 100 years, honestly. Um, If anything, I think it's somewhat better today just because there is now more of a focus on... Well, at least for for young people who are interested in academics and that kind of thing, I think that there's more social currency around that than there had been in the past. But yeah, in general, middle school in particular is the nerve center and really all of middle and high school. I think it's really the hardest time of life for an introvert because it is the time that the main social currency is how outgoing are you? And if that's not your thing... Um, you have to find. You have to look hard to find alternate forms of currency. Right. What impact, given that? What impact has social media had on this? Because it is a way, a, a, a dare I say, quieter way for people to communicate and make contact with each other. Yeah, I mean, I it's a little bit of both for mm-hmm. kids. It's a it's a bit of a double edged sword. In some ways, it's great because, as you are suggesting, it 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 does give kids the ability to be, and and adults too, of course, the ability to be connecting with each other without actually leaving the privacy of our homes or offices or or bedrooms, you know. Uh, And and so it can work really well that way. Um, But for kids in particular, of course, social media has the effect that we all know about of making social life into a 24-7 activity. Like it used to be that you could recharge when you would go home to your parents' house at the end of the school day, but now there is no such thing. You know, it follows you everywhere. And and the constant pressure to compare how many friends do you have, how many followers do you have, um, how many photographs of attractive people who seem to be having the time of their lives at last <laughs> weekend's party do you have, you know, all that stuff really starts to matter. Right. Um, and it, it takes a lot of inner strength to to, to march to a different drummer. One of the things you talk about is that there is a neurobiological difference between introverts and extroverts. What do we know about when that begins to really manifest itself, particularly with kids? Yeah, uh, very, very early. So in general, um, there is this neurobiological difference, uh, meaning that introverts and extroverts have different nervous systems, literally different kinds of nervous systems that react differently to stimulation. So introverts have nervous systems that react more to stimulation uh, than those of extroverts. And that means that for introverts, 
their nervous systems are, are kind of like in a nice state of equilibrium when things are pretty chill and quiet or, you know, when they're with one or two friends. And when they get into a louder, more chaotic environment with lots of people all around, let's say, uh, their nervous systems go into a bit of overdrive. Um, and for extroverts, it's the opposite. If they don't have enough going on, their nervous systems start to make them feel sluggish. Um, so they, they want to stir things up. Believe it or not, scientists have tracked this as early as four days old. Um, they have given sugar water to babies to suck on at four days of age. And they find that the babies who suck more on the sugar water are demonstrating that they have nervous systems that are more reactive. So those same babies, when they're two years old or 11 years old, are the ones who are more likely to enter a room full of kids they don't know and be quite reserved in response because they are wired. They, they have nervous systems that are telling them there are a lot of inputs coming in right now and it's time to chill and take it all in. What happens then, particularly in the middle school and high school years to these kids, the ones that, that are introverts, that, that are neurologically that way, but because of the desire to be popular, because of the peer pressure, the realities of their environment, kind of force themselves to be somebody they're not, force themselves to be much more extroverted. What do we see as the price that they pay, both short-term and long-term, for that? Well, I mean, the, 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 the psychic price that they pay is just feeling at some incredibly deep level that they don't have permission to be who they are, that who they are is not okay. And that basic feeling of who I am is not okay. I mean, we, I, I think we all know this by now. It affects us in all kinds of ways. And so it's really problematic. You know, you can cover it up, and some people cover it up quite effectively, but it's still there underneath. Um, and it can also be incredibly tiring. It can lead to burnout. Um, you know, some of the kids who we talked to for the book were also experiencing problems with their friendships because some of them, you know, while maybe quite popular, um, we, you know, things would happen where let's say they would, they would go, they would just feel like, oh, I need a break. And they would go off by themselves at lunch. And the friendship groups after a while didn't like that and would feel, well, why, why are you ditching us? What's wrong with us that you're not with us all the time? Um, and the problem really was that, that, these conversations weren't being had in an open and direct way. And in some cases, I think the kids didn't even have the language to have these kinds of conversations. Um, so one of the things that we want to do with, with the book and the work around it is to just get kids talking about this stuff in a way that makes it no big deal. You know, it's just part of everyday life that one person's a little more extroverted, one's a little more introverted and, as such, everybody has different needs, and that's fine, you know, and we'll, we'll work it out together. But until now, we have not had that language, and for most of these kids, they haven't even had the self-awareness, mm -hmm. let alone the ability to think about what their friends' needs would be. What about gender differences in all of this? Um, different pressures, of course. Um, so for girls, there is still today more allowance for being quiet than for boys in some ways. On the other hand, I mean, it's really all very complicated because on the other hand, girls are the ones who are expected to be kind of the, the vivacious hostesses of, of a social gathering. Um, but they can also be, you know, 
when it comes to dating, it's still okay to be kind of more shy. That can be a form of allure. Um, and boys, on the other hand, they they can nicely, if, if they're an introvert, they can sort of nicely inhabit the strong, silent type that 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 MO still exists today. Um, they still have the authority that is automatically granted to males in this mm-hmm. culture. Um, but on the other hand, uh, boys feel tremendous pressure, tremendous pressure to be the confident, outgoing, um, take charge, dominant guy. And there are a lot of boys for whom that's just not really their thing. And they can go through a real uh, question of, of identity when they're in adolescence. How do they how do they um, inhabit their power without necessarily um, conforming to that stereotype? These kids do have so much power, you know, and they have so many strengths. So really, the ki- the the question is like, how do we help them find their strengths? What is what is out there? What do you see in terms of for these kids with respect to role models in terms of, of being introverted? Are there enough role models? Are there any role models out there? Yeah, I mean, there there definitely are, and I think role models are tremendously important. So we, we talk about a lot of them in the book, because um, I think role models matter a lot. You know, from Misty Copeland, the ballerina, um, Beyonce talks about having been shy and quiet, um, Adele talks about it, uh, Bill Gates is a, a classic introvert. Um, so there are, there are a large number of them, and we also encourage kids to find their own, you know, the ones that really can serve as a kind of north star for them, especially at the moments where they're feeling the greatest sense of doubt. It can be incredibly comforting and empowering to think of your role model at those moments, mm-hmm. well, um, including not just the famous ones, but, you know, just the ones that are, are in your life, whether it's a, a, a you know, a, an admired parent or an older peer. Those are the people who can really be a north star for you. One of the things you talk about is the difference between being shy and being introverted. Talk a little bit about that, because there's a tendency to be kind of interchangeable with the two. That's true, and they really aren't the same thing. So introversion really is more about where do you get your energy, and that's what we've been mostly talking about so far. Um, but but the book, and, and I guess my work in general, is also about shyness, which is about the fear of social judgment. You know, if you're a shy person you easily feel embarrassed. You're easily um, concerned about what other people are thinking about you. Uh, you, You tend to be worried about social situations. And in practice, you can be introverted and shy. You could be introverted but not very shy, you know, not very worried about these things. Um, And then there are plenty of extroverts who are shy. So, you know, these are people who would really love to be socializing all the time but experience a lot of social anxiety around, around their social lives. Um, and I, I think it's important to understand, you know, who you are and in which kind of situation you feel one way versus another because we're not necessarily consistent across situations. You know, you might, for example, feel very shy in English class uh, where you don't know many of the other kids or don't feel comfortable with them. And you might feel not shy at all in math class where, where your friends are. So it, it helps to be self-aware and know why you're feeling the way you are. Talk a little bit about how teachers in particular understand this. What do you see and, and how are they dealing with it as far as the needs of the kids are concerned? What I see is I see an amazing receptivity among teachers to 
really grapple with these questions um, and a real care and concern for their students of, of different temperaments. Um, I also see that teachers don't really get much, if any, training about temperament and what it means and where what, where these differences come from or in how to teach differently depending on the needs of the, the types of students in the class. I mean, of course, there's lots of differentiated learning in classrooms, but very little up until now that is based on temperamental differences, which, which shape so much of human behavior. Um, so, for example, we urge teachers to use the think-pair-share think, technique where you put out a question to a class of kids. Um, let's say you're asking them to think about why a Romeo and Juliet were attracted to each other. You know, could be anything. Um, you have them think about it by themselves. That's the think part. Then you have them pair up with one other student to talk about it. That's the pair part. And then you ask, you, you invite those pairs to share out their discussions with the larger group. And this this technique can work really well for the introverts and the extroverts because gives everybody a chance to think, everybody a chance to talk quietly with just one other person and, you know, kind of articulate their thoughts out loud, but in a safer way. Um, and then if once they've had the practice of articulating those thoughts, it can become easier to share them with a larger group. One of the realities today that we know is that particularly as these kids grow up and go into the workplace, that group working in groups, interacting with others, being forceful even within that context is just more is more and more important and going to continue to be important in their lives. Well, I mean, yes and no, I would say. Yes, that's true. Um, on the other hand, the group life within a your typical company is very different from group life within a school classroom, really, because within a company, you know, you go into this meeting or that meeting and then you go off and you work on the thing you're supposed to work on. Um, whereas when, when, when projects happen in a group, in a school setting, it, it, it can become a real sort of 24 seven, um, we're just sitting here looking at each other type of experience, you know, where you're in a small classroom filled with 20, 30 children. Um, you know, they're, they're all working alongside each other sort of all day long. So it's, it's not it's not exactly the approximation of group life that I think we think it is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it's important to remember that. Uh, so, I mean, one, one of the things we're doing, we, we're creating a quiet schools network, which is launching this June to work with educators on how to really understand the temperaments of, of their kids and how to best teach to the quiet and the loud kids at the same time in their classrooms. So we're starting with our first cohort of 50 educators this June, and uh, ultimately we want to be in every school around the country. Is there a admiration factor among these kids? Do the kids that are extroverts admire or in any way look up to the ones that are successful and quiet and vice versa? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, so first of all, I think kids look up to other kids who are successful in whatever realm it happens to be, you know, and uh, so that always goes a long way. But yeah, I, I, I also think that um, there is a real mutual attraction and respect between introverts and extroverts that happens at the level of, of friends and romantic partners and colleagues and so on. 
um, because each one really does have a, a style and a set of strengths that the other doesn't have. So, yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, you asked earlier about role models. So in the book, Quiet Power, we, we actually showcased a whole bunch of role models of just regular kids who were, you know, off doing all kinds of cool things by drawing on their quieter strengths. So, you know, everything from uh, class presidents to fiddlers to inventors of submarines, you know, all, all different kinds of kids mm-hmm. uh, who are really drawing on their quiet powers. Talk a little bit about public speaking, a, a great fear of, of most kids, even some of the ones that are extroverts, and I suppose even a lot more so for those that, that aren't. Yes, absolutely. Though I will say there, there's a subset of introverts who are very comfortable with public speaking, and then the rest of them are like really uncomfortable with it. Um, so it's a funny mix. But anyway, yeah, I think what teachers should know about how to work with kids in public speaking, with public speaking, is to remember for some kids it's really, you know, on the scale of 1 to 10 on the anxiety scale, public speaking could be like a 25. Um, And that the way to help any child or grown-up for that matter uh, go outside their comfort zone to learn a new skill is to think of what what their anxiety level is on a scale of 1 to 10 and to make sure you're not asking them to operate kind of in the seven to 10 range, you want them stretching more in the four to six range where it's still a stretch, but it's manageable for them. Because if you're asking them to do something that's just that anxiety making, it's likely to backfire and be a really unpleasant experience. And that can make it that much harder for them the next time. So what that means in practice, if you have a kid who's really uncomfortable with public speaking, you probably don't want to start by asking them to just deliver a, a, a talk in front of the class. You know, you, you might want them to pick a talk and, and be really careful that it's on a subject they love. And maybe they deliver it to just one other kid at first. And maybe from there it's to a small group. Um, you know, and then they step it up little by little by little until they get to their comfort zone. But uh, the, the throw them in the water and... Um, <laughs> and hope that they swim, you know, it does sometimes work and you're going to hear amazing success, success stories, but the risk of it backfiring is too big, in my opinion. We've been talking a lot about the school situation. What about parents and their understandings of the needs of their kids, particularly introverted kids, and in some cases where the parents are not introverts at all? Yeah, no, that's true, and that, that, that happens quite commonly because, you know, you often have... Um, for example, an introvert and an extrovert fall in love, and then they have children of both types, let's say. So, um, you know, everyone's got to understand each other across temperaments. And, yeah, for extroverted parents, it can often be very mystifying um, because they remember their own childhoods which have, in which they had found so much pleasure um, in running around with a big gang of kids, and they see their own kids not having that pleasure, and they want it so desperately for them. Um, so it can be very hard to understand that these kids take their pleasure in very different ways. Um, and so you really have to, I, I do encourage you, you know, whether it's to listen to a talk or read something about your child's temperament, I think it would really help to just get inside their head for a, a little bit. And, you know, and, and then from there you can start to just talk with them in an open way of like figuring out what it is they need and want. So for for a lot of these kids, 
for example, they need to come home after school and chill out and not necessarily rush off into the 17 different activities that the overscheduled child these days normally does after school. Um, And very often, uh, these kids might actually love to do some of these activities, and you might not even know it because they might tell you they don't want to go to soccer today, let's say. And it's not really soccer that's the problem. Um, and the problem instead is that they, they just need time to recharge at home before they go. Mm-hmm. Are there any numbers available in terms of it being 50-50? Is it 60-40? What, what are the percentages roughly among kids that are introverts versus those that are extroverts? It's about 50-50, more or less. Um, and then, and then, for kids who are really are sort of introverts and really highly sensitive to all, all kinds of different, uh, you know, emotional experiences and sensory experiences and so on, um, that tends to be about a third of the population. So either way, you know, we're talking about one out of every two or three children. It's it's a tremendous number. Susan Kane, her new book is Quiet Power: The Secret Strengths of Introverts. Susan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you.